Glad you're here this morning. Let's look together at God's Word. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, please look, if, if you would, to the book of Romans. We are going to keep trucking along in this book. Uh, today we're going to look at the last half of chapter 2. So before I read, just want to set up the book for you just to hopefully get this deeper and deeper in your mind and heart. Hopefully you'll remember some of these things. So remember that Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome around 57, 58 AD, which, you know, is kind of a long time ago. He writes it to a church that he didn't plant, but that he loves very much. If you want to know how much he loves this church, you can look at chapter 16 and see a list of names that he says, say hello, this person, that person, because he knows people in the church. So he's writing from Corinth all the way to the church in Rome and saying, hey, I got some important things you need to know about. Primarily just one, Jesus. Well, the theme of the book of Romans is this, that the gospel is God's power. The gospel is power. So um, that means that whether you're here and you believe in the Lord Jesus and have believed in him and followed him for 50 years, or you're here and you're exploring who Jesus is, we both need the same thing. We both need the gospel. It is God's power. It helps us by bringing us into the kingdom, and it helps us to grow when we're in the kingdom and mature and grow in wisdom. So don't ever forget the theme of the book. The theme of the book is that the gospel is power. It's God's power. Also, don't forget that this is a big journey. Going through the book of Romans is a massive journey. It's like climbing a mountain. So we're going to be on this journey together. And that means that we're going to change. That means we're going to grow. That means we're going to be challenged. That means that you are going and I am going to be stretched. This book of Romans will say things that perhaps you have never heard before. It will stretch what you think about God and stretch what you think about yourself and stretch what you think about the future and stretch what you think about now. Even today, you might experience some of that, which leads me to this. On the front end, to piggyback on that idea that we're on this journey together and it's going to be kind of tough, uh, on the front end, I, I just, because I care, I just want to say, what are you going to do when you have to face some of your fears? You can't read the Word of God without having to come face to face with your fears and your concerns. And Romans is going to do that. So what are you going to do on the front end? What are you going to do when the book of Romans tells you that you are more lost than you've ever heard? Like maybe dead lost. Like you lost, lost, lost. Well, what are you going to do when that realization hits home? But what are you going to do when you have to come face to face with the reality that your future, my future, is going to be more challenging than you expected and more glorious than you can imagine? Are you ready for that? Because it's all coming. And I could go on and on, but I'm going to stop with those couple things to float out there for you to think about. So I want to read this uh, last half of chapter 2, and then we'll dive in. So listen to this. This is God's word. You can bank everything that you are on what I'm about to read. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge, 
and truth? You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not uh, his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. I know that reading that passage doesn't, fa- doesn't pass the 15-year-old boy test, but we ought to pray and then we'll get into it and see what God has for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. Would you write its eternal truth on our hearts? Would you help us to receive your word? And um, in doing that, would you help us to, to know ourselves better? And as always, would you bring us to Jesus? Will you help us to remember that you have good news for us and that it's the good news of grace? Help us to hear that and make that powerful in our lives. Because we want to follow you and obey you and, and know you and know ourselves better and, 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 and work for your purposes in the world. So have your way with us, Lord, is what we're saying. Do whatever you need to do to bring us to Jesus. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Does anyone doubt that we live in a polarized culture? Anybody doubt that? I mean, if those people over there would just get it right, everything would be fine, right? We live in a very polarized culture. And I want you to know that Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome about a fairly similar type situation. In other words, there were some in the church that didn't get along and just thought to themselves, yeah, that group over there, if they would just fix this, everything would be fine. Do you remember where we've been? Chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3 and verse 20 of Romans is one section. And in that section, chapter 1, 18 through the end of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is writing and speaking directly to a group of people in the Roman church who, let's say, they grew up without knowing God. They were like non-Jewish people and they, um, they were basically grew up thinking that they could do life without God. And so Paul talks to them in chapter one and explains a lot of things. And then we get into chapter two and Paul is specifically addressing the Jewish people. And here's why. Because when Paul was saying chapter one, to the Gentiles that grew up without God, the Jews were there going, this is awesome. These people are losers. And Paul is calling them out. And Paul, we agree with everything you said about those people. And then Paul turns to chapter two. And he begins to address the other group. 
the Jewish people, they're the churchy type. They're the ones that are super religious and grew up around the church and know a lot of stuff. So in chapter two, Paul has been addressing the Jewish people, people kind of like us. Most of us probably grew up at least in Christian type culture and Paul is speaking directly to us. Now, that means that when we look at the last half of chapter two, that Paul is continuing to talk to the Jews and he is actually anticipating further resistance from them. You know, because when you're in that mindset of the, all the problems are because of these people over here, it's really hard to get the deep truth into you and me that, oh yeah, I could be part of the problem too, right? So Paul is continuing to anticipate resistance, and this is the resistance that is behind everything that Paul writes in chapter 2, 17 through 29. This is, the, this is what he anticipates from the Jewish people, the churchy people. Paul? Are you saying that we as Jewish people are no better off than non-Jewish people? Really? Paul, you can't mean that. We are God's special people. We have been given all these things and God loves Jews. We're the chosen people. Haven't you read the Old Testament? Don't you realize that God has a special place for us and that we are better than other groups? Paul, haven't you read that, about what God says he's gonna do if anybody comes after us as his special people? That's the background for Paul in writing these verses. He's anticipating this resistance. And this, 17 through 29, is how he answers it. So what does Paul do? What does he do in these verses to answer it? Let me tell you. This is what he does. He takes the position of a pastor counselor. You got that? So in your mind, if you will think about this, Paul writes these words as a pastor counselor. He is a pastor who is counseling this congregation, counseling these people. And this is what we get to see in verses 17 through 29. We get to eavesdrop on two counseling sessions, all right? So verses 17 through 24 is one counseling session, and verse 25 through 29 is the second counseling session. You got that? You follow me? Can you see where we're going and what's behind all this so far? We good? So the first counseling session, verse 17 to 24, is a question, and the second session is also can be summarized with a question. So session one, 17 through 24, revolves around this question. Do you really know yourself? Yeah, it's a question that we need to think about too. Do, do you really know yourself? And the second question in 25 through 29 is this. Do you know what you're missing? Do you know what you're missing? That's a question we gotta think about too. In our lives, we gotta think about what am I missing? Well, let's jump into this counseling session where the Apostle Paul is meaning to counsel us too. And oh, by the way, God is counseling us through the Apostle Paul. Let's not forget that, right? So session one, verses 17 through 24, Paul begins with this basic question. Do you, do you know yourself? Do you, do you know who you are? And Paul does that in such a gracious way. Look at verse 17 through 20. He has basically a list of descriptors of this group. I mean, he really, he knows these Jewish people. You know why he knows these Jewish people? 
He is one. Let's go through these descriptions. This is a good counselor. This is someone who cares. You call yourself a Jew, verse 17. In other words, you identify with being a Jew like we would say, we're American. He says you rely on the law. In other words, that you are trusting that the possession of the law is a shield against God's justice. He says you boast in God, meaning you know that God is one. That is a profound truth that you stake your life on. But really, you think that you've monopolized God's affection. He says even more than that, um, that you know his will, that you think that God's will is supreme and better than superior than all others. This is who you are. You think that God's will matters. Next, you approve what is excellent. In other words, you've tested this will of God and truth from different vantage points and, and you realize at the end of the day that you think God's way is best. Here's another descriptor. You are instructed from the law. In other words, you've not only received the word of God, but many of you have memorized it, you've studied it, you know a lot of details of the law of God. Then he even says the next one, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. In other words, you not only have all these things and associate yourself in this way, but you see yourself as a teacher and an instructor. And finally, he ends with this, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Again, you possess the law of God. You, you've got the book. You've got copies of it everywhere. You know that this book and these things of God are really, really important. In other words, here's the summary of what Paul's saying in verses 17 through 20. Um, you have the law, you respect the law of God, you even try to share that with other people, and even deeper than that, you in your mind think that you are helping people. But then, after starting there, asking the question, do you really know yourself? Because I know who you are. Here's a description of you. Then Paul probes more deeply. Look at verse 21. You, you who instruct, do you, do you receive instruction yourself? In other words, those of you who have grown up in the church and know all kinds of churchy things, you like to instruct other people. It's part of who you are. But, but do you only instruct from a position of pure authority? When you get to instruct other people, is it fresh in your own life? Or is it just there's this distance and I'm the one who knows, and you're the one that needs to receive. Those of you that teach, and all of us teach all the time, do you teach as one who is still being taught? Then he gives examples. Look at what he says. He gives three examples. Uh, the first one is about stealing. Then you've got sexuality. And then he has something about robbing temples. In other words, he's, again, probing. He's pressing deeper into their lives. He's trying to get them to think deeply about, do you really know yourself? In other words, in teaching others that we shouldn't steal, do you steal? And the word is very general. It's meant to communicate this. Uh, are you kind of shady in some of your interactions? 
Like you tell people not to steal, but how about you? Do you cut corners on things? You know, you want everyone else to know you should not steal, but in your life, it's okay if you cut some corners here and there. You who teach others that you shouldn't commit adultery, the only person that you should sleep with is the person that you're married to, husband and wife. And yet, do you commit adultery? Do, do you ever look at someone and lust after them? You see, he's pushing them, isn't he? Because all of us have this tendency to think, here's the God's word and... Uh, As long as I'm not snuffing someone out with a pillow, then, you know, I'm not murdering anybody. And Jesus is saying, no, this goes deep. The real understanding of the law is that the law is actually describing a beautiful person, someone who is completely, completely beautiful inside and out, consistent in their motives and their outward actions, because all of us know what it's like to be around fake people. And the more we grow, the more we realize, hmm, I've got some fakeness going on in my life too, right? And then he says, you who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? This one's a little bit harder to understand. It could mean this. It could mean that he's just flat out saying, those of you that would never, ever, ever even go by some type of idolatrous place of worship, but yet you never give to the church, which God calls robbing from him and stealing. It could be that, or it could just be that there were people in the first century that they would never go near, uh, uh, they would never go near an idolatrous place of worship, but yet they would take some of the icons from those places and sell them and make money. You see, Paul's pressing. Do you, do you know who you really are? And then he draws this conclusion in 23 and 24 where he says, you know what? There are people who are outside of the church and they look at people who say they go to church and they look at people who they say, do those people say that they follow God and they actually end up mocking God because of what they see in our lives. Do you hear that in 23 and 24? Paul is saying, do you not understand that you are no different from anyone else? As a matter of fact, there are even people who are outside the church that look at those in the church and say, if that's the way that a follower of God is supposed to live, I don't want anything to do with that God. Does that ring a bell? Do you think that we as followers of Jesus are the easiest people to get along with? You ever had someone who did work for you who said they were a Christian and yet they, um, you know, stole from you, didn't do their job, weren't honest and sincere? I mean, we see that little fish thingy on someone's business card and we think immediately, oh, well, this is a good person, got to go with them. How's that worked out for you? Hasn't always worked out for me. Anybody ever met a pastor who was a real jerk? I have. It's not the way it should be, is it? You see, I want to tell you a story about this guy named Stephen Bachman. 
probably never heard of him. It's part of the reason why I wanted to use it. There's a guy named Stephen Bogman who is an avowed atheist. And a number of years ago, he was really interested in exploring Christianity. He wanted to understand, I mean, if God's real, then, uh, and I don't think that, but if it's true, then, um, you know, I might want to figure out what's real and what's true, right? Because if God is real, then uh, I'm accountable kind of thing. So he started researching and he found out that there was an apologist who was very famous. His name was Ravi Zacharias. And he thought to himself, you know what, I need to listen to this guy. He's famous. And people look up to him as a Christian witness. And so he started listening to Ravi Zacharias. Many of you have probably heard Ravi. And in the course of listening to Ravi, he heard Ravi talk about some prophecies in Daniel and how they came true, and it deeply affected Steve. I mean, profoundly affected him. He thought, if this is real, um, I need to change my entire worldview. And he had no idea who Ravi Zacharias was other than just listening to him. So he started doing research on Ravi. And guess what he found out? He found out that Ravi had not been truthful about his education, his titles, and a lot of things that he did. And, and you know what Steve did? In a very humble and private way, started communicating with Ravi's ministry for a while, asking them, why do you say this when this is true? By the way, that was way before all of the scandalous stuff came out about Ravi. You remember, I'm sure you've heard of some of that, which Steve was, became aware of over time. And I'm trying to get in your minds this. There are people who are radically against God with every fiber of their being. And it's really hard to interact with that group of people because they're so emotionally cranked. You almost have to deal with that before you can ever get into issues, especially if you've ever been in those situations before. It's not easy when people are hell-bent on hating God and his people. But I want you to know that there is a large group of people that are intellectually astute and they are just indifferent to Christianity because of what they see. And those are the kinds of people that we can build relationships with and should, as we should with anyone, no matter how extreme they are. But I want you to understand that you can have productive conversations with people that don't have your worldview. And you could be respectful and you can listen. And beloved, if anyone brings up things like this situation between Steve and Ravi, you might say, maybe should say, you're right, that, what Ravi has done, is absolutely horrific, full stop. I wanna to read to you where Steve landed, if you will, after being interviewed about all these things that I just mentioned to you. I wanna land with where he landed. This is something that he said, because I think this can help us even more. 
Steve says, I do not think that Ravi's turning out to be a really unsavory character should ruffle anybody's faith one way or another. Would you expect to hear that from an atheist? An atheist shouldn't use this as a club against Christianity, and Christians shouldn't, shouldn't have their faith ruffled because there are, you know, for every Ravi Zacharias, that there's a really good, solid Christian scholar with integrity. The issues are the issues, regardless of what the messengers are doing with those issues or corrupting them. So I really think it's important for people to depersonalize this. We're talking about facts of deception by a prominent evangelical, as well as people in high places in the evangelical Christian, excuse me, in the evangelical Christian business world and ministry world, enabling him and covering up for him. Can you hear that? Beloved, Paul is saying the same thing to us. Do you really know yourself? And do you realize that you can come in contact with people that have accurate things to say about our inconsistencies and we need to acknowledge that that is not only possible, but it's true. And we can even take advice from this guy. Shouldn't shake our faith. And if you're here and you're an atheist, you shouldn't club us over the head for it. It is what it is. Paul's saying, do you know yourself? And then look at what he does in 25 through 29, quickly. Here's the second session. Here's this second meeting with our counselor. And he says, do you know what you're missing? Do you know what you're missing? Like, after pointing out the inconsistencies in our lives, he's like, but, but do you see, churchy people, do you see what you're missing? See, in the Jewish mindset, their thinking was, my circumcision is a shield that protects me from God's justice. The physical act itself is what makes me good. It gives me confidence before God. It gives me a standing. Well, verses 25 through 29, Paul actually tells us what circumcision really is. In other words, he's addressing the Jewish people and saying, I'm not sure that you get this thing, this idea right. Uh, for sake of time, I'll put it into a math equation. Those of you that like math, 25 through 29, here goes. This is what God means when he talks about circumcision. Physical circumcision minus obedience equals uncircumcision. Here's another equation. Physical uncircumcision plus obedience equals true circumcision. Now, don't hear that and saying, oh, obedience is what brings me salvation with God. Nope, not at all. Obedience is the illustration that God's grace has been at work in our lives. Circumcision has always been a picture of a spiritual reality. When you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that God says, yes, you need to be circumcised, but circumcise your hearts, not just your physical body. God says repeatedly, I will circumcise you. I'm the one that does this. I'm the one that gives you a new heart. 
That's why Paul ends these verses talking about the Spirit. It's not that you just do and tick the box off that you did a command that God said to do and therefore everything's right. No, these things like circumcision, like baptism, like the Lord's Supper are pictures of the gospel itself. They're picturing for us God's grace and everything that he does in salvation. Remember? God has always pursued people. God pursued Abraham. God changed Abraham. God said, I'm going to do all these things, Abraham. I'm going to bless the whole earth because of what I'm doing in you. And in order to secure that relational bond between Adam and his family and God, in order to secure that relationship, God created this thing, you know, he used, excuse me, he utilized this thing, circumcision, because it's not like God slid a piece of paper across the desk to Abraham. He's like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Now I need you to sign this, Abraham. No, God gives signs like circumcision to act out the consequences if we don't stay in the relationship. And so, Circumcision is not only meant to picture cleansing, it's also meant to picture being cut off so that if we are unfaithful to God in this relationship, God has the right to cut us off. In other words, if God himself doesn't fulfill what he says, then he deserves to be cut off. And Abraham was perfect, right? he wasn't? Well, well, then how could God love him if he wasn't perfect? How could he love him if he, well, well, what about David? David, David was perfect, right? No. So, so how in the world can God ever have a people? Because the history shows that his people are unfaithful. How in the world can that happen? God tells us. Matter of fact, the assurance of pardon that we heard today is from this section I'm going to talk about right now. God tells us that we have been circumcised without hands by being grafted into Jesus. Because do you know what happened on the cross? Christ was cut off. Isaiah says that he was cut off from the land of the living. Can you make the connection in your mind? Paul is saying that this idea of circumcision is actually picturing Jesus. It's actually showing that he's the one that fulfilled and not only fulfilled, but he's the one that endured your unfaithfulness. He's the one that was cut off for you so that in him, through the cross, through his life, through everything that he did, he endured it for you so that my relationship with God and the reason why God can have a people is because he's a God of grace who knows that his people are wayward and wandering and he goes and gets them in love and in truth and brings his people back. So you see, our boasting, as the text says, is not in ourselves. It's in who? God. 
for what God has done in Jesus. Do do you see? What are you missing? What are the, let me back up. Do you know why Paul is so passionate about this? Do you know why the Apostle Paul can anticipate the Jewish people's um, pushing back on him so clearly? Do you know why Paul can anticipate that there are Jews who say, we're the chosen people, we're special, we're better than everybody else. Haven't you read the promises that God has given us in the Old Testament? Don't you know this, Paul? You know why Paul knows and is so passionate about this? Because it's the way he used to think before he met Jesus. He read the Old Testament, never saw Jesus. Oh, but he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, zealous more than those around him who had the same thought. He was better than other, do you get the point? He thought he was better because he was Jewish. And then he met Jesus. You see, what what we're missing is that we, at times, struggle to connect our life, our obedience, uh, the Bible itself, God's word, to Jesus. The Jews, they didn't connect the Bible to Jesus or circumcision or the law, none of it. They needed Christ. And he's saying you need Christ. So do we, the churchy people that we are, that have all read the scriptures and read the Old Testament and never saw Christ. But man, we sure learned principles. Who thought of obedience as something separate and disconnected from Jesus. I'm just gonna think this way, do this, do this, do this. Meanwhile, your heart just gets colder and harder, right? Oh, but you're doing the right thing, but you don't really need Jesus because we're growing in obedience. Paul's saying, no, we need Christ for everything. And that means this. Friends, to wrap this back around to the whole polarization thing, Christ didn't die so that we could hate our enemies. Think about that. He died for his enemies. He didn't die so that we can keep hating our enemies. Christ didn't die so that we can grow in our pride. He died to make us humble. Christ didn't rise from the dead so that we would be tied to this world. He rose from the dead so that we would serve the world, so that we would bring life and good news, so that we would live for the life of the world, just like in Genesis. Christ didn't rise from the dead so that that we can be trapped in self-centeredness. He died and rose from the dead so that we can love other people and be outward facing. Because that's what he did for us, do you see? We all need Christ. His death and resurrection are the only thing that gives us 
all of the resources and all of the power that we need to serve and love others. And that's exactly what brings us to the table.